KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, critical race theory has been attacked on Fox News nearly 1,300 times. It's being banned from public schools and colleges in something like 15 Republican states. But what is critical race theory, and why is this happening now? Kimberly Crenshaw will explain. She teaches law at Columbia and UCLA. She's probably the most prominent figure associated with critical race theory. She coined the term 30 years ago. She's also creator of the concept intersectionality and the hashtag say her name. Also later in the hour, our TV critic Ella Taylor will talk about Summer of Soul, the documentary about a music festival in a park in Harlem in 1969. I thought it was the most moving thing I've seen about the 60s anywhere. And the story it tells is com was completely unknown. The footage sat in a basement for nearly 50 years and no one cared. But first, our political update. And for that, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor at large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here. We're still thinking about the Supreme Court giving the green light to Republicans to make it harder to vote. The court ruled last Thursday, six to three, that it was perfectly okay for Arizona to put restrictions on voting by mail, despite lower federal courts finding clear evidence that those laws made voting harder for people of color. This is certainly bad news for a bunch of upcoming legal challenges being brought by the ACLU and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and lots of other progressive groups challenging Republican enacted voter restrictions in other states. Just how bad could this be for the 2022 midterms? Well, it's not good. Uh, and what, what's particularly not good about the court's ruling, which was uh, a decision written by uh, Sam Alito, who is probably, uh, along with Clarence Thomas, the most aggressively capital R Republican member of the court, uh, was uh, his, his reasoning. Now, I mean, because the Arizona laws themselves, despite the rulings of the lower courts, didn't really have great uh, impacts on racial disparity. As Nate Cohn noted in the uh, New York Times, uh, the uh, amount of difference between what these laws uh, would have done for uh, white folks and minorities uh, was calculated to be one half of 1%. Uh, and the Biden Justice Department, fearing a broader ruling, actually was willing to concede on the uh, Arizona laws uh, passing muster. But what Alito wrote was that the state has a legitimate interest in preventing voter fraud that actually uh, meant that even if there were racial disparities in the remedies that the state uh, had put in place to prevent voter fraud, that was okay. Uh, so that was a more sweeping opinion than the uh, particular Arizona cases actually called for, which I don't think has been really widely stressed yeah. uh, in the media. Uh, and, you know, then, as, as Nate Cohn and others, and, and Ron Brownstein has written very well about this, too, in The Atlantic, uh, as, as they have noted, uh, then the question becomes, well, how big a racial disparity, if any, uh, would nullify uh, uh, the, these kind of state restrictions. And of course, lurking behind all this is the fact that effectively there is no voter fraud in the United States. So the very premise of uh, the Alito decision essentially is based on the myth of voter fraud, which exists because it opens the door to Republicans to enact uh, what are essentially voter suppression laws. So the legal, the, the rational basis for this is absent, is erroneous, is wrong. But six Supreme Court justices voted that it is the, the, a decisive factor. And the question now is where does that leave the rest of the legal challenges, where does that leave Democratic candidates? Where does that leave voting rights groups? Um, 
some legal challenges still probably remain uh, viable. The uh, Alito decision did point to a benchmark, a pretty weird one, it seemed to a lot of us. Uh, he said the clearest benchmark for the future about what the court might do with the next batch of cases about Republican-sponsored voting restrictions in other states is whether a new rule imposes a burden that was typical in 1982 when the Voting Rights Act was last amended. What does it mean to take 1982 as a benchmark? Well, th this is, uh, you know, uh, as it were, originalism and <laughs> amendmentism run amok. Yeah. Uh, because in 1982, all kinds of uh, options uh, that have been open and particularly were open during the pandemic year of 2020 simply didn't exist. Uh, uh, Sunday voting, uh, uh, the ease of, uh, of, of absentee voting, uh, all, all kinds of things that have happened since uh, really weren't around in 1982. And, yeah, in 1982, uh, in order to get a absentee ballot, you had to apply and say you were disabled or or on vacation or otherwise unable to get to the polls. And then somebody had to rule that this was a good reason. And almost everybody voted in person at their neighborhood polling place. That's the way elections went in 1982. Of course, the Democrats won plenty of elections under those rules. They did. They did. Now, now the interesting thing, uh, you know, this has been kind of a crazy week uh, for people living on the coast of Florida. Uh, first, it may be apparent that uh, any high rise they live in may not be actually the safest place to be living. Second, there are a lot of seniors in Florida as there are a lot of seniors in the United States who have routinely not been voting at their polling place as was the custom in 1982, but have long been accustomed to voting uh, absentee uh, or voting by mail. Voting and by mail. Yeah, let's call it voting by mail. Exactly. Uh, although in 1982, it was called absentee voting. Yes. So, you know, not only is the ground beneath those senior Floridians perhaps dangerously shifting, but the political ground beneath those uh, senior Floridians may be shifting as well as an inadvertent consequence of uh, Sam Alito's ruling. So, um, of course... In 1982, almost everybody voted at their neighborhood polling place, but since 1982, re Republicans have shut down a couple of thousand neighborhood polling places in Democratic, especially minority uh, neighborhoods, and especially in the last few years. Uh, if you hold 1982 as the standard, shouldn't Sam Alito conclude that, that shutting down a couple of thousand minority polling places is unacceptable? He should. Uh, and uh, some people believe that this does create at least one path for Democrats uh, to go to court and basically succeed uh, if that is their complaint, the closing down of neighborhood polling places. Of course, if the court's real motivation, if the six Republican justices on the court, real motivation is simply helping Republicans, uh, as it was in the uh, earlier Shelby County decision that uh, struck down the ability of the Justice Department to clear uh, voting changes in historically segregationist Jim Crow states, and as it was in uh, a case called Bush v. Gore, oh, then yeah. it doesn't matter uh, what, uh, uh, wh whether such protests actually should be uh, validated by, uh, by Sam Alito. Uh, you know, in a sense, if you look at both Shelby County and then the Arizona decisions of uh, uh, Arizona versus uh, DNC of uh, earlier this month, uh, earlier last month, actually, what you see is, uh, you know, simply a, a, a kind of uh, extrapolation from Bush v. Gore to uh, essentially a ruling that says, uh, you know, the court is not only influenced by elections, as, uh, as was long ago stated, by a beloved newspaper columnist saying it follows elections, uh, the court, you know, can actually decide some elections. And that that's a pretty dangerous situation for the nation to be in. Well, and let's, rem let's remember that in 2000, Al Gore got 
half a million more votes than George W. Bush. Uh, but uh, in 2016, Hillary Clinton got 3 million more votes than Donald Trump. And in 2020, um, uh, Joe Biden got 7 million more votes. So the trend is perfectly clear. There's millions of more Democratic voters than there are Republican voters. Yeah, the Democrats in the last eight presidential elections, the Democrats have gotten more popular votes than the Republican in seven of them. The only exception being the George W. Bush re-election in, uh, in, in 2004. Uh, and, and so uh, basically put the really most viable, if not the only viable Republican electoral strategy is voter suppression, uh, is, is keeping Americans uh, that uh, are going to vote uh, from their point of view wrong uh, from the polls. So uh, it's interesting, it's significant that despite the Republicans' efforts to make it harder to vote in 2020 and 2016, and for the previous couple of decades before that, nevertheless, the Democrats have rolled up increasingly huge margins of victory. That suggests that the Republican efforts haven't succeeded. That's why they're redoubling their, their efforts. That's yeah. the conclusion they've come to. But the Democrats don't have to... Uh, just wring their hands and say, "Oh, you know, we can't. We're, we're we're defeated." What they do now is, suppose your neighborhood polling place has been closed, and now the polling place is five miles away. That just means candidates have to provide rides to people who need rides. They have to get um, lots more volunteers. They have to to drive. They have to contact voters and make sure that they that they know where their polling place is. And if they need a ride, let us know. Um, it's more work. It means they should put their money not into TV ads, but into the ground game and into volunteer uh, uh, field operations, they call it. Uh, and that's what they have been doing, in fact. They have. I mean, in a sense, your ideal situation is when you have a standing army, uh, when you have a uh, paradoxical, though this may sound, uh, lowercase d democratic Tammany Hall an organization that yes. walks the precincts regularly, that's always there, and that you can count on to give you a ride to the polls. Of course, in the case of Tammany Hall, uh, once you got to the polls, you might vote twice. We're not talking <laughs> about that this time. We're talking about uh, a, uh, you know, a, a legal system, but the infrastructure is important, and uh, the Democrats have appreciated that in recent elections, uh, the, the zeal with which Democrats were motivated to get rid of Donald Trump uh, certainly helped, uh, but that zeal, um, you know, needs to be permanent and in that sense, de-Trumpified. Yeah. Uh, it's not just about the guy, it's about the future of democracy. But, you know, I mean, money has to be put into building a kind of permanent infrastructure. When parties really ran the show, that was there. Uh, you know, we, we've been living for um, the better part of, uh, you know, for more than half a century, uh, well more than half a century, uh, in, in which party infrastructures aren't there, uh, really, like they used to be. Uh, I think Aaron Holt wrote a book called The United States of Ambition uh, about, you know, the candidate-centric uh, uh, politics that have characterized the last 70 or so years, uh, or 60 years anyway. And um, uh, that, that's not really sufficient. We need movements to step up to kind of create that kind of permanent infrastructure and to the degree that uh, the party can do it too, that's equally essential. And our model here is Stacey Abrams in, in Georgia, who has an organization in every county of the state. It's been working for 10 years. They're they're very good at it. And they elected yes, they elected the two senators who saved the United States and saved the world. Yes. And and that kind of organization is precisely what we need in the other 49 states now. Uh, one other thing, just sticking with this weird 1982 thing. The other thing that didn't exist in 1982, along with voting by mail, was ID requirements for voting. Uh, this, of course, has been a Republican obsession for the last couple of decades. It's the reason the whole fraud thing has been argued so, strenuous so strenuously. But this is another sp space in which the Democrats have learned that 
if your state requires a government issued ID, then one of the things candidates and movements have to do is help their voting base get the ID that is required. And again, it's more work, but it's not impossible. And when uh, Joe Manchin said he would want to see that as part of election law, none other than the above mentioned Stacey Abrams said, okay, we can handle that. If we can do require that. a voter ID, we will make sure all of our people uh, have the proper ID. Uh, you know, so uh, uh, it's, it, it, it's a question of rising to the challenge and the Georgia experience led by Stacey Abrams shows that basically it can be done. And we need to remember that these are laws which are all passed in states. States govern a great deal of the mechanism of voting in the United States. And Republican states are making it harder to vote. But as we said two weeks ago, a lot of Democratic states are making it easier to vote. And then there's the swing states. So it's extremely important that the Democrats focus on winning the legislatures of swing states and winning the governorships of swing states. And in fact, there are three crucial races for governor in 2022 in swing states that currently have Democratic governors, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. The Democrats have to hold on to those governorships. They do. They do. And, it, and, and those are exemplars, ex exemplars of the phenomenon that it's easier for Democrats to win statewide office in states like that than it is to win the legislature because the legislature was misapportioned to favor Republicans uh, in the last census. And it's hard to get something that's been misapportioned correctly apportioned. And uh, so, but that doesn't mean that the Democrats uh, can't pile up statewide majorities. And even apart from the question of districting, uh, the Democrats, uh, you know, can produce a real large uh, voter surplus in cities, uh, which the way, you know, uh, districting works tends to be underrepresented uh, in legislatures, but that gives them a statewide edge. So, yes, it's very important that the Democrats cling to at least the governorships in those three and other states as well. And there's another state where a Democratic incumbent governor is being challenged. California, Governor Gavin Newsom is facing a recall. How's that going? Well, uh, it, it, for the proponents of the recall, I don't think it's going that well. The recall has been scheduled for September 14th. Uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, who, like most governors, took a hit in the poll when the state was closed down due to, due to COVID, has rebounded. The state has a huge uh, Democratic edge, and assuming they can get some voters out there, uh, he's widely favored to survive the recall. Uh, recalls, as, you know, as those of us who remember the recall of, of Gray Davis and the election of Arnold Schwartz, Schwarzenegger can, can recollect, uh, recalls tend to be these rather chaotic institutions where a, a gazillion, by actual count, candidates <laughs> uh, file for the office. And those votes aren't even counted if uh, the initial vote on the recall is no. Uh, but you have a, a slew of candidates who have been running around. Uh, I find it hard to believe that any of them uh, are going to get any traction. Schwarzenegger was such a big figure in American popular culture that, uh, you know, he, needless to say, attracted a huge amount of, uh, of media attention. I don't think he really needed advertising. Uh, he was clearly going to win if Davis was recalled. Uh, there's really no one uh, in the current uh, class of candidates who re even remotely resembles, uh, resembles him. And so uh, I think the Democrats are fairly confident about uh, surviving the recall, uh, but that doesn't mean that they still won't have to do a lot of work between now and September 14th. And uh... Although we are based here in California, we've heard that there was a mayoral election in New York City. We don't know too much about it, but we've heard that the ex-cop won, and that is kind of puzzling and disturbing. What happened to progressives in New York City? Well, I don't think we've really answered the question of what happened to progressives in New York City. Uh, uh, to begin with, there were a num several prominent progressives who uh, were in the field, chiefly two, Scott Stringer, who was a city controller, uh, and Maya Wiley, who had been uh, a general counsel for a brief period 
to current mayor, uh, Bill de Blasio, and a, a well-known commentator on MSNBC. Uh, for a long time, they were kind of splitting the progressive vote. People were not making endorsements. So they didn't know which one uh, to back. Then Scott Stringer uh, was uh, accused of uh, sexual harassment. Uh, and only then did the New York left begin to position themselves uh, clearly behind Maya Wiley. Uh, AOC endorsed her at that point. But that was only shortly before the voting. And uh, I think that was, that was too late. Uh, the uh, upsurge in crime uh, certainly uh, helped the former cop, Eric Adams. Uh, Maya Wiley had uh, been running on a police reform slate, which is still absolutely necessary, um, even in the face of an upsurge in crime. And uh, uh, I think the New York Times endorsement of Catherine Garcia, who otherwise would have gone nowhere, she was the city's long-term sanitation uh, commissioner, uh, clearly knew how to make the bureaucracy work, but didn't really have a political profile at all. Nonetheless, uh, that persuaded uh, a, the, a clear plurality of voters in Manhattan uh, to vote for her. The, as it were, the New York Times uh, subscriber list, except for those who, who went to Maya Wiley, but those who didn't feel uh, that they were, wanted someone as left as Maya Wiley uh, all went to Catherine Garcia. The, the, the real flop in the, uh, among the leading candidates was Andrew Yang, who uh, had gotten most of the publicity uh, in the race because of his reputation and having run for president in the Democratic primaries of 20, uh, 2020, actually of 2019, he bailed out uh, early in 2020. Um, and uh, as it became increasingly apparent that the guy was just a little bit of a flake and didn't really know much about New York, um, there was kind of a centrist conversion around, uh, around Eric Adams, whereas there wasn't really a progressive conversion or ultimately that much enthusiasm behind Maya Wiley and Eric Adams uh, will be the next, uh, the next mayor of New York. And he's claiming, and this is an interesting claim, he's claiming that, you know, he is a, a truer voice of the uh, city's working class, mainly black and Latino, also, you know, a relatively small number of whites that is not uh, all that liberal on cultural or social issues, but uh, you know he professes to be on economic issues. It's really not all that clear if he is, since he's been very close to the New York uh, real estate uh, industry, which is the main source of money in New York politics. So we shall see where New York goes. One more thing. This week is the sixth month anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. And let's remember that 147 members of Congress voted to overturn the results of the election and make Trump president even after the Trump mob attacked the Capitol. After that, most big corporations pledged not to give money to those 147 people if they ran for a re-election. Uh, and because we still have campaign finance laws, we can find out which candidates have gotten money from which corporations. What do we know about corporate support for the insurrectionists? Well, thanks to a very good column in today's Washington Post from Dana Milbank, uh, we know that one corporation has just gone off and blithely given uh, contributions to, I think the figure was 37, uh, of, of these uh, Republicans, and that is our good friend Toyota. Uh, Toyota. Perhaps, Toyota, perhaps being nostalgic for the good old days of Generalissimo Tojo in, uh, <laughs> uh, in Japan, uh, who uh, certainly uh, didn't, wasn't one who uh, was really endeavored of democracy, as, as, as we would understand it. Toyota seems largely indifferent to the fact that uh, um, they're giving money to people who essentially uh, wanted to overturn the election, even after the uh, violent uh, insurrection uh, in the Capitol. Um, either they're simply not paying attention or they're, you know, uh, focused uh, with a kind of uh, idiot savant uh, focus on only on helping candidates who might help uh, uh, Toyota sales somehow. 
but uh, you know, they, they definitely stand out as a malignant force in American politics. Harold Meyerson on Toyota, the official car of the January 6th insurrection. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Always great to have you on the show. Always good to take a ride with you, John. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Next up, we want to talk about critical race theory. We're a little late on this. In the past three and a half months, the Fox News Channel has talked about critical race theory nearly 1,300 times. It's being banned from public schools and colleges in something like 13 or 15 Republican states. But what is critical race theory? Started 30 years ago. So why is this happening now? For comment and analysis, we turn to Kimberly Crenshaw. She teaches law at Columbia in UCLA. She's probably the most prominent figure associated with critical race theory today. At least that's what The New Yorker says. In fact, she coined the term 30 years ago. She also created the concept intersectionality. She's got a really good podcast called Intersectionality Matters. And she co-founded the African American Policy Forum, now one of the country's leading social justice think tanks. In 2015, it created the hashtag Say Her Name. Everybody wants to talk to her these days, NPR, Time Magazine, MSNBC, The Guardian. So it's a special pleasure to say, Kim Crenshaw, welcome to the program. John, it's so great to be on the program. And I think your listeners might not know that the first time critical race theory really had a national public hearing was in an article you wrote in 1989 called Law Professors Fight the Power. So we're coming full circle right now. <laughs> yes, that was in The Nation magazine. I was writing about an article of yours in the Harvard Law Review. Wasn't that the first thing you ever published? Race reform and retrenchment. Yeah, that yeah. is so, so salient now because the the basic point of the article was to say that wherever there is race reform, there's inevitably retrenchment. And sometimes the retrenchment can be more powerful than the reform itself. And there are some ways that what we are experiencing right now is exactly that. Well, it's rare that a professor scholarly work gets banned in more than a dozen states. I guess that's a measure of the power and significance of your writing, but I'm not sure I should say congratulations. I'm not sure if I would receive it either. <laughs> I, mean, there's, I mean, of course, the whole point of, of writing ideas is for them to spread, but it's an entirely different thing when the idea that you are writing about has been gentrified effectively by uh, uh, an opposing agenda that fills it with meaning that becomes a source of hysteria yeah. uh, on, on, the, on the part of, of the right. So it truly is a moment where yeah, there's bad news and good news. The good news is critical race theory has been mentioned, as you said, thousands of times. The bad news is it's been on Fox TV and, you know, the, the various right wing news media. So it, it's really a moment of, of mixed blessings, to yeah. say the least. Well, I want to spend just a couple of minutes on how screwed up their understanding is before we talk about the big question, which, of course, is why is this happening now? Mm -hmm. I want to start with the warriors against CRT, let's call it, who think the basic is a basic idea is I'm quoting here by your race alone, you will be judged, close quote. They don't seem to know about intersectionality. Well, not only do they not know about it, John, they don't want to know it. You know, So I won't go through the names, but let's just be clear that those who have been behind this movement are really clear that they don't care about what the ideas are. They, they, they said they don't they don't give a, a, a good you know, exp expletive about what this is really about. What they recognize is that this is a great wedge issue. They can take the name, they can fill it with meaning, they can create this hysteria, and that can be a winning idea or a winning issue when they really don't have any other uh, agendas to push. And I think what we're seeing is precisely that. So, you know, uh, 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 directly in terms of 
the claim that they make about us. Obviously, these folks have not read intersectionality. Obviously, they don't get that one of the main points of critical race theory is to say that to understand racism, racial power, our history only as a matter of prejudice or bias, as uh, a matter of individuals who are morally bankrupt is not to understand the history of race in America. So the whole point of critical race theory was to repudiate the idea that we can talk about racism only as a moral failing or as a quality of individuals rather than as a structured reality that's embedded in institutions. That's what critical race theory was about from the very beginning. <laughs> Sounds pretty so, good to me. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's ir it, it, irony is, is at, in, at the least to say that they are trying to beat us with precisely the thing that we were trying to dismantle. Well, the Oklahoma bill banning what they call crit critical race theory does have a pretty specific idea. They uh, prohibit teaching the concept that a person, quote, by virtue of his or her race, bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race, close quote. What, what actions in the past committed by white people do you think they don't want students to learn about in Oklahoma? I think this is the best example uh, at what's about, that tells listeners what's at stake and why it's surfacing now. So, we just last month as as a nation turned our attention to the centennial of the Tulsa uh, massacre in the same month that this 100 year effort to finally draw attention to the fact that thousands of, of black homes and businesses uh, were destroyed, hundreds of African-Americans uh, of means were killed. And the truth about that had been literally and figuratively buried in Tulsa. We finally were at a moment where the implications of it and the fact that it happened um, were ripe for public discussion and education. Then this bill comes along, the governor signs it, who, by the way, was a member of the committee <laughs> that was designed to actually interrogate the meaning of that history. This bill comes along that basically chills efforts to talk about that history. And I think the, the language that you quoted tells us what's really at stake. The idea that anyone now is responsible for something in the past is designed to interrupt the conversation about what does repair look like? Um, what does compensation for the survivors uh, of that uh, race riot uh, look like? What do we have to think and talk about if we then start talking about all of the race riots that happened, all of the ways that mobs of people destroyed black property and black futures and undermined our ability to be um, like every other American and, and, and make our way through this country with, without racism interrupting us at every stage. So precisely where this where we are in a moment of racial reckoning, precisely when we are broadening our concepts of what racism has been and what its contemporary consequences are. That is the moment when these laws come about that effectively say that was then, this is now, and anything that contests that cannot be raised in our school systems. So this is about a contemporary agenda, controlling narratives of the past in order to limit what has been unfolding in this country for the past year. And it's just kind of a footnote to that history discussion. I, I know that people on the right also connect critical race theory to the 1619 project, completely different undertaking, but that's a history curriculum launched by the New York Times that emphasizes the centrality of structural racism in America since the very beginning. The latest on that front is, uh, the refusal to give tenure to the historian who led the 1619 uh, project, Nicole Hannah-Jones, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, uh, where she was up for tenure to the Knight Chair in Race and Investigative Journalism. Remind us what happened to Hannah Nicole Jones in the last week or two. Well, it, it, it's, it, it's a bone-chilling story because uh, the Board of Trustees under uh, pressure from 
right-wing donors from others who have money and means uh, effectively refused the appointment, uh, denying her the tenured appointment that is usually a routine affirmation of the vetting process of of the school itself. And let Uh, me add that had been already voted by her colleagues and by the administrators in charge of that position. I mean, it's very, it's, you know, most, most listeners might not know that it is highly unusual for the board of trustees to overturn a decision that's gone, gone through every uh, university process. So the fact that they were able to do it um, uh, is a, a reflection of how, uh, powerful um, this this effort to suppress these interrogations of the past actually are. It's a testament to how organized and mobilized uh, the sentiment is, and uh, how little they fear from exposure. I mean, this was going to be the highest profile effort to uh, actively punish people for exploring in an academic way. Uh, alternative narratives about the the, the nature uh, of our founding, uh, the, the very effort to say, what if we thought about the formative moments of this country, not in terms of 1776, but in terms of 1619, when the, the first African people arrived on these shores who stolen labor created the capital uh, that allowed for the massive expansion of these colonies into what is currently thought of as the United States. It is a legitimate way of thinking about history. You don't have to agree with every part of it, but to think that it is acceptable, justifiable, defensible to deny someone tenure because of a, a project for which she has won the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> it's basically telling us all of the traditional things that are said about meritocracy, all the traditional things that are said about freedom uh, of academic pursuits. All of the, the people who go to the mat about freedom of speech, usually when it's on the other side of the aisle, it basically is telling us at the end of the day, the substance of this project is so objectionable to a cohort of our public that they are willing to go to the mat and deny this person the tenure job for which the university vetted and and approved her. This is telling us that we have to be aware that everyone who's not Nicole Hannah-Jones is also uh, potentially at risk. This is an assault on the academy. It's an assault on the freedom of, of ideas that no one, whether you know critical race theory 1619 at all, uh, should be satisfied with. This This is a shot across the bow. Kimberly Cranshaw. Kim, thanks for your work on critical race theory and on intersectionality and for the hashtag say her name. And thanks for talking with us today. Well, thanks, John. And, and let me just say, while we're talking about hashtags, don't forget truth be told. That is the hashtag that we're trying to use to fight back. So I encourage your listeners to look us up at aapf.org and find out about how this repression is coming to a town near you. A lot has happened with Nicole Hannah-Jones since we recorded that interview. First, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill announced that its trustees had reversed their decision, and now the university was granting her tenure. Then Nicole Hannah-Jones announced she was leaving UNC Chapel Hill and instead accepting an offer of a tenured chair in journalism at Howard University. Of course, that's the prestigious historically black university in Washington, D.C. Howard also announced it was at the same time hiring writer and Howard alumnus Ta-Nehisi Coates, author of Between the World and Me, Their positions were funded by nearly $20 million in donations from the Knight Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and the Ford Foundation, along with another contribution from an anonymous donor. The funding establishes the Knight Chair in Race and Journalism, a tenured position which will be held by Nicole Hannah-Jones. Lots of places were recruiting her. Why did she pick Howard? She explained, quote, 
I've spent my entire life proving that I belong in elite white spaces that were not built for black people. I decided I didn't want to do that anymore. Black professionals should feel free, and actually perhaps it's an obligation to bring our talents and resources to our own institutions and help build them up as well. She said she won her battle for fair treatment at UNC, but, quote, it's not my job to heal the University of North Carolina. That's the job of the people in power who created this situation in the first place. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for TV Talk with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, the LA Times op-ed page, lots of other places. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. Well, we have to talk about Summer of Soul. That's the documentary on Hulu made by Questlove about a music festival in a park in Harlem in 1969. I have to say it's the most powerful and moving thing I've seen about the 60s pretty much anywhere. And the story it tells is completely unknown. The footage sat in a basement for nearly 50 years and no one cared. So let's talk about Summer of Soul. Well, the first thing to say about it is that it has a subtitle, Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. And the reason is that there were 40 hours originally of filmed footage, which were made by a a white director of commercials and uh, um, entertainment videos uh, named Hal Tulchin. And uh, he, he filmed these 40 hours in the hope of then, you know, selling them either as a, mainly as a TV series. Uh, but it could not be televised because nobody would pick it up. And uh, the reasons are fairly obvious. It, it, what he was filming there was a, um, the Harlem Cultural Festival in the very significant year of 1969, um, one year after the murder of um, Martin Luther King. And uh, the director, Questlove, whose full name is Amir Thompson, who has a million other jobs and talents, but he's mainly known as the drummer for the rap group The Roots. Uh, And he's also um, a well-known music historian and and, uh, adjunct professor. Um, He was told about this, and uh, along with a few other directors like Spike Lee, at first just couldn't believe that it actually existed even. Um, But once he was convinced, um, he winnowed uh, the 40 hours of footage down to a little more than two hours, during which it was mostly filming the the musical um, gigs that were at this festival, which was attended by thousands upon thousands of mostly black people and Puerto Rican, um, uh, who also lived in the Harlem area. Tulchin himself um, died in 2017, so it's a great pity he didn't live to uh, uh, to see the the finished product. Product, which is really, as Questlove puts it himself, a transition from pain porn, the pain porn that is often what we see in any narrative of blacks in America to uh, a festival of joy. And that's exactly what it is. It's this enormously joyful music, mostly music festival that he suggests was actually thrown and funded by a lot of white people in order to keep blacks from rioting um, as they had the year before when when Martin Luther King was murdered. But in fact, it turned into an all-black event and uh, featuring all kinds of of musicians who have now become 
legends. And he added interviews from surviving musicians, which is awfully thrilling. Uh, but the main event is the acts themselves. He also finds some people who attended the festival who were in the crowd, and they were some marvelously funny and, and wonderful accounts of what it was like to be there. But the the main event are obviously uh, the musicians, and uh, who includes nineteen year old Stevie Wonder, BB uh, King, um, The Fifth Dimension, and uh, notably uh, Sly and the Family Stone, which was is the only multiracial group in the festival. And as these musical numbers unfold, or Mavis Staples also, and Nina Simone, who I'll come back to in a, a minute, because she takes the festival and adds militancy to joy in a rather startling way. <laughs> but the main thing is that that uh, gathering all these performances together, we they they amount collectively to the enormous uh, co contribution of Blacks and um, to a slightly lesser degree Latinos to contemporary pop music. Um, you know, the blues, obviously, soul, obviously, and there are gospel choirs who come onto the stage, Motown and, of course, rock and roll, and a host of other uh, music forms that have survived very well indeed until the present moment. Most of it with uh, vibrantly colourful um, costumes and uh, on-stage get-ups, which are also nonetheless um, were notable to me for their extremely chaste nature compared to the get-ups that you see of the likes of Britney Spears and uh, Jennifer Lopez and, and others today. So um, the emphasis was really on color and style. Uh, and it really is an absolutely wonderful fashion statement as well as a, a terrific uh, music um, festival. Right at the end, or almost right at the end, uh, Nina Simone comes up on the stage and she almost raps to a poem that was written by somebody else. I didn't catch the name. I don't know if you did. That is extremely militant in, in uh, content. It's a real rabble-rousing poem, which includes the you know sentences such as, are you ready to kill? Um, and the thing about that is, no matter what you think of militancy, and obviously the Black Power movement was, you know, coming into its own at the time, they are rather at odds with the decidedly, you know, good-humoured uh, and joyful atmosphere that, that prevailed both amongst the performers and the audiences at, at that time. And of course, she has this marvellous voice and, and uh, a charismatic presence. So uh, obviously this has many lessons for for today, which thankfully Questlove doesn't spell out because it really doesn't, he doesn't need to. He keeps himself out of it by and large as well, even though he's a major musical presence today. Um, but it was just such a treat to see, you know, Dave Ruffin from The Temptations come onto the stage in all his regalia with a huge floppy bow tie. I think it was pink uh, floppy bow tie. It was such a presence because he's immensely tall and rangy. Uh, his legs about eight miles long, and it's just a, a really. It was really a wonderful presence. He had just left the temptations at that time to strike out on his own. So um, I went from a rather dutiful feeling going in to a rather beautiful feeling coming out. <laughs> well, the highlights for me were, for some reason, the gospel uh, sections really got to me. The Those of us who were around remember these songs. Oh, Happy Day by the Edwin Hawkins Singers, which was a hit tune of 1968 with that great uh, woman with the alto voice and uh, the fifth dimension singing, let the sunshine in. And then there's a scene of uh, Mavis Staples helping Mahalia Jackson sing, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. After Jesse Jackson narrates the last minutes of Martin Luther King's life, it's just an overwhelming and, and unforgettable 
performance. And I liked a lot of the talking heads that they got. Greg Tate, the rock uh, historian and, and music critic. Uh, Al Sharpton, who was a boy preacher, apparently. Uh, and Charlene Hunter-Galt, who wrote for the New York Times and then was on PBS. She tells the story uh, of arriving as a freshman student at the University of Georgia, the first black to integrate the University of Georgia. They put her uh, in the dorms alone on the first floor and the white girls upstairs, she remembers pounding on the ceiling above her room and she drowned them out by playing Nina Simone records. One of the other great things Questlove does as director was he shot some of the, tracked down some of the performers today and screened the footage of them 50 years ago performing. And, and then we have their reactions. Two people from the Fifth Dimension just tear up. Stevie Wonder explains what he was uh, doing. And the magnificent Gladys Knight today, she's quite magnificent, who says something important was happening that day and it wasn't just the music. And Mavis Staples sort of sums it all up saying, so many black people. And then, as you say, the last word goes to Nina Simone, who's fearless and gorgeous and magnificent uh, voice. And amazingly, this is Questlove's first film. It is his debut, and I'd be interested to see whether he will. I mean, he actually resisted directing the film. He was trying to get other people to do it, but uh, they all encouraged him to do it. And I guess he said, what the hell? Um, I just want to add that even those of us who weren't around at the, the time, I don't mean chronologically, but those of us who lived across the pond, um, these were all presences in, in England at the time. So we all knew those songs and loved those songs as well. Summer of Soul on Hulu, you gotta see it. Well, now it's time for something completely different. Instead of Harlem in the 60s, how about Detroit in the 50s? Yes, and uh, here we have another very positive review as well. The film is No Sudden Move, which you can see on HBO Max, um, directed by uh, Steven Soderbergh, who has emerging yet again from retirement, which he announces at frequent intervals, um, and written, and I'm very pleased about it, he's a wonderful director, and it's written uh, in a wonderful screenplay by Ed Solomon. It's a period gangster crime thriller, or rather it's built as such, and it is um, certainly, it has its surface um, plot, uh, mimics that neo-noir um, genre very much so, but it's really a caper <laughs> and a very funny one at that. Um, and it's about a, um, a minor gangster played by uh, Don Cheadle, who is one of several actors who look decidedly seedy and past their prime, um, which should be a clue to just how effective they are as gangsters, <laughs> who uh, he's sent by a recruiter to um, threaten and menace a family whose, whose father is an accountant for probably some not very legit enterprises um, as part of a blackmail scheme. Things go awry when the uh, accountant brings back fake documents and one of the gangsters who's played by Kieran Culkin, who I think has now been sentenced from um, his role in succession to play very creepy characters is shot dead. I want to go back to the opening scene, though, because there we see um, Don Cheadle in the front of the car being given his marching orders by a recruiter. And I was thinking to myself, that recruiter is such a great actor, but I don't exactly <laughs> recognize yes. him. Yes, and exactly. Fact, he is played by um, Brendan Fraser, who, uh, whose very lovely body we saw in George of the Jungle and a whole bunch of other movies was something of a, of a heartthrob, but is now um, grossly overweight. He sort of gives you the feeling that he's in on the joke, um, but also that he's playing it for deadly serious. He's really quite menacing. It turns out that uh, it, it, the film has an absolutely fantastic cast, all of them directed with great elegance by Soderbergh. Aside from Cheadle and Brendan Fraser, um, there's also uh, Benicio del Toro, who's also looking very seedy and past his prime. 
um, as Cheadle's rather reluctant and totally incompetent sidekick. Um, Ray, Ray Liotta also appears in the movie. Amy Simetz, a director in her own right, plays the mother of the family. Um, Bill Duke uh, appears rather briefly and uh, um, it falls to poor Matt Damon to be to represent uh, the forces of monopolistic late capitalism coming its in, into its own in the in um, the 1950s oh, and John Hamm is also also in in it as a, a somewhat discerning uh, detective it is the plot is completely impossible to follow so I'm Thank not you. we're not we're not gonna try we're not gonna try <laughs> but it is um you know it doesn't matter because of the it's such an elegant caper um not not at all in the style of uh, of oceans whichever it was um but still very funny very witty um but at the same time can be admired just for its its superb visuals um, and wonderful cinematography, um, and uh, it's it really is a terrific thing. Even if you can't, I actually have not encountered another critic who could follow the the serpentine plot. And there's a little coda at the end that says what happened after the movie ends, and there's no way of knowing whether this is in real life or, or that it's just yet another joke that. Soderbergh is playing on us, which I can, I could fully believe, but it's just a terrific uh, movie. And it does have a little bit of critique of Detroit in there. It's posed in a very funny way. Ray Liotta, again, not that bright a gangster, is aware that there is a the, of the secret document, which is this, the MacGuffin for the for the plot, and he says it concerns a Cadillac convertible. And they all say, why would that be a secret? Well, what he's actually doesn't. Don't I'm not going to say what it was that he is talking about, but it turns out to be a hilarious joke on the term Cadillac convertible. One other thing I want to mention, a whole lot of really gorgeous cars from the early 50s and the late 40s also star uh, in, in this movie. No Sudden Move on HBO Max. Loads of fun. And there are some more neo-noirs to talk about. There are, um, and they're absolutely terrific. All 27 of them are coming um, to the Criterion Channel in July. And I, for one, I'm just going to be squirreled away watching them. Um, I just want to single out a few because there are 27 and they're almost all wonderful. Um, the femme fatale is well represented by Kathleen Turner in Body Heat uh, and Linda Fiorentino in, in one of the first movies I, I ever reviewed. It's called The Last Seduction. And there's a much more contemporary um, neo-noir. Very good. Um, per personal uh, private investigators. Would you believe Chinatown is going to be available there? And I say, would you believe? Because a lot of my students at USC have never seen Chinatown, which is very strange. Um, and The Long Goodbye, uh, Robert, the Robert Allman movie, uh, and Farewell My Lovely with Robert Mitchum as a, um, a strong, silent um, private investigator. And one other film that is one of my all-time favorites, which is the Ivan Passer film, Cutter's Way, which is an absolutely brilliant film with... Uh, Jeff Bridges and uh, the late John Hurd um, that's set in Santa Barbara really is uh, an absolutely wonderful film. And we have time very briefly for one more. Yes, I just want to, I have not seen this movie yet, but I am dying to. It's going to be playing at two Limley um, theatres that coming this Friday. One is the Royal and the other is Encino Town Centre. And it's a long ago um, Holocaust drama called A Distant Journey by Alfred Radock. Um, and uh, it's the, really the, an autobiographical fiction by um, the director who was a survivor, a Czech survivor of the Holocaust. It carries a, a wonderful imprimatur from the well-respected critic Jay Hoberman. So that's opening this Friday um, at two Lemley Theatres. Ella Taylor is our film and TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. 
You are very welcome, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.